Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Welcome to Healthcare 2030. My name is Noel Guillama. I'd like to introduce Carl Larson. Well, thank you, Noel. It's good to be here and uh, good to be in the number 18 podcast. Number 18 is a big deal for us. Uh, today's subject, we're going to talk about the new administration in Washington and what has been their published uh, plans and what they've actually done. Uh, we're recording this in April of 2021. Um, and maybe we'll go over a little bit about what our last podcast was about in case someone wants to go back and read it. But uh, if you remember, we talked about technology-infused care. We talked about the, the opportunity and the value of IoT devices mm -hmm. in the future of technology. Um, and we talked about really the sort of the omni-care approach. Right. I think we, we've used that word for the first time here. Um, and talked about the literal physical delivery of care, the physician part of the delivery of care. Um, the direct care uh, and remote care, and where the facilities were uh, of care, where the location of facilities that were receiving care, and we talked about even the MOBs and mm -hmm. what I what I sort of argue would be sort of the functional obsolescence of them um, because of the difference now in the way phys uh, physicians admit patients to a hospital, and we actually talked a great deal about technology stack, which is what we have done as a company. And I think we, I know we believe it individually. Um, so that's really the opportunity. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the one thing that uh, I would add to what you said, we talked uh, some about the hospitalist, the, uh, the doctor in the hospital that's providing that bridge between the primary care physician and, and patient's hospital stay and the importance of that individual, but how that position may be affected by remote care and direct care now moving more to the home environment. So things, uh, changes, uh, changes in the air in healthcare and things are moving. So with that introduction, then I think we could talk about the new administration in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Um, one of the things that I, I want to point out, because people sort of think that healthcare is just sort of a today issue or a this decade issue, but the reality is healthcare has been... Um, one of the key components of of the United States presidential elections, really going away back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, and and it was interesting too as we uh, began to review that again. Roosevelt was very active and understanding the importance of healthcare and brought a lot of early foundation into the healthcare system in the United States. Well, it's interesting when we go back in time now and, and recall that. Uh, uh, former President Trump ran on a campaign uh, effectively uh, against what was at the time called uh, uh, Obamacare, which mm -hmm. is really the Affordable Care Act. And um, now President Biden ran a, on a very strong campaign about expanding health care. In fact, I think he talked about uh, Obamacare 2.0 or the ACA 2.0, something like that. And, and he laid out a pretty detailed plan as what he wanted to do. And, um, and he's in that process of executing. And we can talk later about the new uh, secretary of HHS, 
mm-hmm. um, Mr. Bracera, yeah. uh, and his impact both in California and what his possible impact could be here. Will you talk about it in this podcast or the next one? But the interesting thing is that literally um, a, a, at the beginning of the administration, the president signed a couple of executive orders. Um, one of them uh, is affecting Americans today, which is basically creating a new open enrollment for those that are that are that want to have access to the Affordable Care Act uh, and the exchanges and and that program, and and that executive order ex- created a special, the way it was called, uh, enrollment period that began in February 15 of 2021, and is active right now as we record this uh, podcast, and will be active to May 15 of 2021. Right. So it allows people. Um, that would have been, you know, uh, uh, prevented from enrolling in it because the open enrollment period had expired to come in. And he also did something uh, very powerful for the community is that he instructed um, federal agencies effectively, this is my words, not theirs, is to cooperate and, and to uh, uh, promote and make it as easy as possible for people to enroll into these programs. And I can tell you that uh, one of the things that, that I was always very uh, complimentary of the program, or of the original ACA, was two things. One is that it eliminated um, pre-existing conditions as, as, as a condition or different premiums. Um, and, and the second was very important, um, was it, it standardized uh, premiums. Those are really very valuable long-term solutions and I think should be around. Um, obviously, one of the things that, that, that is part of the ACA was allowing um, uh, people to have access that could not find insurance or even could not afford insurance, um, a government-assisted and sometimes government-paid-for program that had to do with your your in- your income. So if you had more income, you paid more. If you had less income, you paid less. Uh, so that's been a value for literally millions and millions of Americans and uh, has also standardized the, the program from the insurance companies. And I know people that benefited from that that would have had you know, either no insurance or would have had to pay tremendous amount of co-payments for 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 major issues like cancer and 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 things like that. That 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 uh, is what the insurance was designed for to sort of spread the risk so that you really don't put people into bankruptcy because they 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 have a disease that uh, they couldn't do anything about. Right. Well, you know, and to that, the you know credit to the Biden campaign to wanting to expand healthcare and to provide healthcare to many, many more Americans, in addition to making it more affordable, making more accessible, and uh, even to the extent of lowering the Medicare age from 65 uh, to age 60, which would enroll another, I think, roughly 20 million Americans into the Medicare program. So um, clearly, you know, the intent is to ensure that many, many more Americans are able to get the health care coverage and the medical attention that they that they require. Well, that's very valuable because people, it is really hard because very few people want to talk about it. And I know that the governor in the state of Florida, uh, that where we live in, doesn't want to talk about that the largest industry in the state of Florida is health care. It's just, it's not how you bring tourists or how you bring visitors. Yeah. But in fact, it is the largest industry in the state of Florida. Uh, people, when they think about Florida, they think about Disney World, and they think about the beaches and all the great weather and golf and things like that. Uh, and that's fantastic. And that's why we live here. But the reality is that Florida's number one industry is healthcare. We spent also 
on a per capita basis um, in you know more than anyone in healthcare, right. but particularly Medicare, which is what the measurement is. Um, and uh, and it, the, the interesting thing is we also noticed that with a shutdown uh, of the COVID shutdown in, in, in both the states and, and, and many parts of the nation, right. that that you had an, obs an obscene amount of medical professionals that were unemployed or temporary unemployed or permanently unemployed. It wasn't just the hospitality business, no. uh, the restaurant, the hotel business that got impacted. Healthcare, for the first time that I have seen studying it, um, at least in 1965, which is where the good data is, healthcare had never had a recession. It had gone 10% increase, nine, seven, five, four. I think in one, one or two years, it may have had like 1% increase. Right. It was the most stable employment of, of, of any sector, I think, that we had in our economy. For sure. And, uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is we've talked about here, and that's why we, we, we named this podcast Healthcare 2030, is not only, as we've talked before, that we think that the most innovation into healthcare, certainly in the last 50 to 75 years, are going to happen in the next five or 10 years. It, because of COVID, it may happen now in the next you know, three to five years or three to seven years right. because it's all been accelerated. And, and I think that uh, some of the opportunity that we had by using particularly telemedicine, uh, a year ago when we started these podcasts, a little over a year ago, uh, telemedicine was sort of, you know, uh, uh, obscure a little bit. Maybe it was a niche opportunity. Um, it wasn't very well paid. It wasn't very well received. And the reality is that, that when when COVID started, Medicare, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, telemedicine, you know, was about 5% of all healthcare encounters in the United States. We know that at the peak, let's call that May of, of 2020, the, about 70% of all visits to physicians or to providers was done by telemedicine. Now, it immediately dropped really fast because as soon as uh, people understood that they could take precautions, you know, with uh, with COVID, uh, the lockdowns were 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 reduced or or were scaled back. Maybe the better word. Um, immediately, especially the elderly, went back. Right. So that by June and July of last year, uh, 70% of those over 65 were back to visiting their doctors. What is really hard for people to understand about telemedicine is that there are really two optimum examples for telemedicine. First, people that do not have access to, to, to care. If they're sitting in the middle of Wyoming or uh, they're in an Indian reservation and they have to travel 50, 60 miles to see a primary care physician, that's a big burden on society and a big burden on the individual. So telemedicine is a lot better than either not getting care or getting care, you know, with long spans uh, uh, in between them. The second scenario is in routine care. So people that are uh, having um, chronic conditions, uh, diabetes, it could be even COPD, um, certainly asthma, and other issues that that are better taken care of if they have constant communication and feedback with their doctor. So if you've got diabetes and you're telling them what your blood glucose monitor is, uh, or if you're doing it in, um, in in COPD or asthma and you're telling them what your, your oxygen levels are, those are information that are incredibly valuable a doctor can do. Um, historically, they've done it at an office because for a couple of reasons. One is a doctor was able to provide better comprehensive care in an office, but also is it was economics, is, is 
Medicare paid for telemedicine generally uh, in those type of conditions I described where, where there, there was no access to telemedicine. That was a big deal. So what happened with, with, uh, with uh, the coronavirus is the government uh, uh, through regulation basically said that the patient could see any doctor sort of anywhere for any reason um, using telemedicine and they would the the uh, the provider of care would be paid the same thing whether they saw them telemedicine or they saw them in the office uh, the second thing they did is they also which is also helped telemedicine is that it allowed um, for doctors to cross state borders before that it was all regulated uh, between the states as to what doctors could provide care in that scenario so that's a humongous impact and uh, and humanist value for technology however uh, as of the last count, um, telemedicine utilization was about 15% last time I saw it. And my expectation says that it will go, you know, a lot lower. So, uh, by the way, I said 5% was original. Actually, the baseline was 1%. 1%. Yeah. So, we think that in time, telemedicine will probably be 5, 6, 7% of all healthcare. And it is a variable among uh, the population, particularly in different age groups. Uh, you know, the upper end of the age groups, uh, they tend to not utilize telemedicine quite as much as some of the, the middle range uh, and the people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, because they're used to the the face-to-face the -face with their physician. Uh, there are also a couple of, um, you know, a, a couple of other areas that uh, telemedicine doesn't provide a lot of help, and that is pediatrics. You know, you really have to see the patient, I think, in pediatrics to uh, to really confirm a good diagnosis, number one. Uh, secondly is uh, orthopedics. You know, you've really got to see the patient. We got to, they've got to feel the joints. They've got to see and, and talk to the, to the patient uh, more face-to-face. -face. But telemedicine does something else, I think, and and uh, let me just expand and say not just telemedicine but technology, and that is uh, expand and, and leverage the physician, the physician, the clinician, whether it's a, a PA or an ARNP, uh, really leverages their capability with a patient and provides a lot greater um, access to care than what can be done in a strict office environment. You can only see so many patients, and um, you know, especially now with the COVID rules and and the and the way the waiting rooms are, it's much more difficult to get in to see a uh, a physician with uh, telemedicine and with with technology. The physician is leveraged, and that's going to be very beneficial, I think, going forward in many ways. But certainly, because one of the things we're seeing is a decline in the number of physicians in the United States. We're falling behind, and our medical schools are not seeing as as great a number of of applications for a uh, a medical degree as what they have seen in the past. So, uh, the need to leverage that knowledge and that capability is paramount to maintaining population health. Uh, you have any? Thoughts well, on that? Well, the, the thing about medical school is really interesting because what, what seems to happen is that we are sort of, we as a society are having a sort of a victim of two things having to do with medical schools and, and medical education. 
One is that still the majority of, of providers, of doctors, uh, even maybe not as much nurse practitioners, are baby boomers. So in the state of Florida, the average physician is 57 and a half years old. Right. So they're probably already start talk, thinking about retirement, maybe work to 70, 65 or 70. Or, or, or um, even reducing the number of hours they so spend. That, sure. So there's, there's a transition period. And right. what's happened then, even though uh, we actually expanded, oh, I think my last count, six or seven medical schools in the last decade or two decades, uh, we had a number of period, a period of time where we had no new medical schools. I don't know if it was 20 years or 30 years, but right. a very long time. Right. And the population grew materially during that period of time. So the issue, the issue that we have now is the, the, not just a number of physicians in medical school, but their relative size. So if you're going to have a humongous cohort of baby boomers that are going to come offline, which they will over the next 10 to 15 years, almost all of them are going to come offline as far as uh, you know, measurable practice of, of, of medicine. And on the other side, the cost of a medical school has you know has exploded exponentially way more than the cost of living way more than the cost of of, of even other educations mm -hmm. uh, you've got a problem so now you have a generation that's looking at why do i want to become a doctor okay why in the gross level why do i become a doctor why do i want to spend you know an additional you know eight to twelve years uh, between medical schools, the residency, and especially right. to come out, the a lot of, of 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 new doctors are coming out with quarter million dollars in debt. Oh yeah, so it's a big big deal. That's, that's a tremendous burden. To right. Carry forward. Now, so we now and, and and go back to the side. Those same baby boomers that are retiring at the rate of ten thousand a day, right. a day, a day. Okay, uh, for the next ten years is drawing or requiring more care at the time that we have an shrinking number of physicians. So depending on who you read, uh, they estimate the physician shortage in the next 10 years are gonna be at least 100,000. Yeah. Somebody, other people are saying 150, so it could be 200,000. The opportunity we think is gonna be for technology to help bridge that. Got so to. yeah, telemedicine will help, IoT devices will help. We're also going to see a major move into remote care. Mm -hmm. And we saw this with what happened during the pandemic with the people that were stuck in, in assisted living facilities, nursing homes, or uh, that type of environment were very vulnerable because they could spread the virus incredibly quickly. So what we're, we're actually starting to see, we predicted, I think, in one of our other podcasts, is that people are looking now as to each aging in place is a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe more communal um, uh, arrangements where you may have one or two or three or four individuals occupy a home, mm -hmm. maybe in the suburbs, and, and then bring the services to them. So we think the value of remote care uh, that was already on an upward trend is going to explode or is exploding. Right. Where now I've seen contractors that used to talk about smart homes, meaning, you know, they had, you know, Cool device, the devices to turn on your lights. Yeah, the programmable your thermostat was. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was a big thing, wasn't it? That was a big yeah, thing. I, we had to go get those. I, I, I the the builder in my house put a bunch of those stuff together. That I think all were replaced by Alexa, but I don't want to talk about a commercial here. No, she will uh, hear you. Yeah, so the, 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 that's going to be the trend going forward. So now builders are actually building healthcare or wellness smart homes. Yes. So design. Uh, to understand that they're going to need it. So it, not just meeting the 
the uh, American Disability Act as far as construction grade and, and the road and the access and the and the, the, the door openings and things like that that are that have been around now for 30 years uh, or longer now they're looking at it okay how is this uh, homeowner going to go from you know think about the scenario they're going to go from a potentially sort of newlywed family children mm -hmm. sort of the how big is the mudroom is really important right whereas the pool is really important but now they say, well, what happens when they become an empty nester and they don't want to move? What happens when they, they're getting older? Could this home carry this family, you know, through their productive years and through their retirement years? Well, you're, you're, you're leading directly into another, another area that is a, a real shift and has been discussed uh, in a number of real estate journals that I've read. And that's a change to the multi, a return to the multi-generational home. Uh, where where you have uh, mom and dad or gram grandma and grandpa and, and mother and father and children all now in the same home and uh, so it's uh, it's a it's it's a tremendous change in our society that uh, we're beginning to see and it's a big move in a lot of areas so so any new administration we have to look at that and look at health care costs um, and understanding those 10,000 people a day Mm -hmm. are going into the government plan. So they're no longer, or, or generally no longer, responsibility of the employer or even self-insured. Right. So uh, that's a big deal. And if, if the president is able to achieve his goal, as you said earlier, of expanding Medicare to age 60, which, by the way, from an actuarial and healthcare policy makes a tremendous amount of sense because those people are right there at that cusp uh, where their annual... Um, Healthcare consumption is material um, in, in the state of Florida, easily, easily fifteen hundred dollars a month, or two thousand dollars a month, and and uh, and and Medicare advantage is that they have reduced costs. So right. an insurance company will never—I've never seen an insurance company get a rate that's below Medicare. Well, if, if they're lucky, they get Medicare. That's really. I think lucky. I think a part of the argument that I've heard is that. Dropping to age sixty allows a lot of things to get caught earlier, and and situations that then by the time an individual is sixty five become much more serious, much more costly, much more difficult to address. That we catch it early, we can head it off, and we can keep overall costs more contained. Absolutely, and the same thing is is with insurance companies. If, if somebody's in that age group, and they say, well, we only have to insure them for another couple of years, and it'll be Medicare's problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying they say that, but no. what if they did, right? Um, there are some and, that will. <laughs> and there are people that there are people that are advocating that, that Medicare should start at the age of 55, which, I, by the way, I have no idea how many more people that would add to Medicare. But I know, as you said, at age 60 would be about 20 million, 20 million. which is huge. I mean, the economic value to the industry, the healthcare industry, is 50 or 60 billion dollars a year. So it's also a business. People forget, um, in, in the United States in particular, that healthcare is a business. I know it's about the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. It is a real business. Um, it's going to be $6 trillion by 2030. It's about $3.7 billion today, trillion today. So it's a material increase uh, in cost. Um, and we're gonna surely, in, 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 in the foreseeable future, not into the long future, we're going to see healthcare go from that, uh, you know, 17 to 18% of GDP to well over 20% of GDP. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And people don't realize that when that GDP is 20% of healthcare, 
effectively the industry took it from somebody else or from some other industry. Right. So um, it, it's it's not uh, it, it's not accretive. It, it is restrictive. So it actually you know puts so so much of the gross development of this country into healthcare. So it's interesting that that as we talked about that that healthcare has been um, front and center. Um, literally for 18 or 19 presidents. Um, and what's going to be interesting, and, and nobody's really talked about it because uh, it's just not politically correct, but uh, President Biden inherited a couple of really great ideas that that, that, that he's going to be able to benefit his, his administration. One uh, was price transparency. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, The price transparency uh, was mandated on the prior administration that hospitals had to publish effectively their charge master as of January 1st, 2021. Yeah. That's a big move. Now, it isn't earth-shaking because hospitals have many interesting ways to comply. <laughs> I have friends in the hospital industry, right? So I hospitals- be careful how you say that. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, hospitals have a lot of creative ways to comply 100% with the law and um, <clears throat> not necessarily make it less obscure or less opaque. And the reason is- that hospitals control their charge master. That that's their let's call it their 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 that's list their of items or everything. Chart of accounts. Chart of accounts. So they can name it everything. They can mm-hmm. name it anything. They can aggregate things, and it's it, it it's really really hard to do it. But I think over time, I suspect that this administration is going to uh, make it more defined. So, for example, DRGs is diagnostic related group, which is how hospitals bill Medicare. Uh, it would be cool to say you've got to list your retail price of DRGs, okay? Or uh, you have to list your uh, your uh, charge codes, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the CPT codes, you know, so that people could compare. Because CPT codes are very defined. They're very specific. Yeah. There, there's not a lot of movement. There's no movement, really. Yeah, there's many characters code. out there now. So uh, the, 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 the way that you put it together is that the, somebody could actually compare what it is. Right. Uh, there's another fight in transparency uh, that I'm not sure has been settled yet. I don't think so. Uh, where the hospitals were required to publish their lowest price, right? Okay? Which is an advantage, um, really for. I don't. I don't think it's an advantage for consumers. It's actually an advantage for other insurance companies. Yeah. Because what happens is you end up with very very strong insurance companies. The largest company in this country, and I, I like them personally. Is United Healthcare. They manage, I don't know, two hundred fifty billion dollars yeah. of healthcare. Yeah. I think we talked about it in one of our first podcasts. We did. Um, then you have other companies that are very, very powerful uh, in the space, uh, and they are able to negotiate very good prices, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Um, and then you have smaller insurance companies, or even employers, self-insured employers, or RISA plans, Arisa, yeah. that that are piggybacking off other insurance company. It could be certainly United would be interesting, uh, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, WellCare, Century. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, Coventry. All you know, they're all players, and this is kind of interesting because you're trying to do is standardize the what the charges are. Uh, but it's also, by the way, all of this is putting more pressure on hospitals. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing because, you know, it, it just you have to be careful how you put pressure on hospitals because we saw with COVID, a number of hospitals fail. And and the government, both in uh, under the, uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration, has literally given tremendous amount of subsidies 
and support to the hospital right. industry. Right. Because if not, they were to collapse. If the, if the only thing they could have was their emergency room for, for accidents and emergencies and heart conditions, things like that, or COVID, uh, and most of that money comes from Medicare, um, I can tell you that I'm not aware of any hospital in this country that could survive on Medicare rates, period. Yeah. Um, the reality is that Medicare, uh, at best, and, and best is a big stretch, pays cost of care. Literally what it costs a hospital to provide care. I don't even think it does that, by the way. Um, and Medicaid guaranteed every provider out there loses money on Medicaid. The way they, they're able to make money is their payer mix is very important. Is mm -hmm. how much is very little self-pay, but how many are paid through employers, which generally is the highest reimbursement, uh, and, and, and sort of uh, fee-for-service medicine is also high. Right. And then you get the bucket of Medicare in the middle, and you've got Medicaid sort of the stragglers. Um, so there's no way that, that the whole industry, and that's why we, I think we had a conversation in one of our last, one of our podcasts, is that the healthcare industry would go bankrupt the way we know it today if there was a single payer, and the single payer only paid Medicare. Or even some people say, well, we'll increase Medicare rates by 10%. Yeah. Well, first of all, it would really be a catastrophic cost for Medicare. But the reality is that the way the system has been built, the system would still collapse materially it because would. that ten percent's not enough. No. Because right now we're we're offsetting uh, the cost uh, from Medicaid to Medicare, from Medicare to people. Well, and we'd see even fewer people heading for medical school and fewer nurses, fewer. Fewer trained clinicians, uh, we we'd see, you know, uh, the labor pool just completely evaporate, and and we can't run a healthcare system without without people. The other thing that's interesting about prior administrations and what we're talking about is is EMRs is sort of the I'm going to call it the modern EMR mandate started with the Bush administration. Yeah. Okay, um, and it was accelerated materially. Uh, by the uh, by, by Obama uh, yeah. with the ACA and the High Tech Act that actually mandated that uh, or, or well the Bush administrator mandated it. Uh, what a, what the Obama administration did is is sort of double down on the mandate and create penalties. The Bush administration had not created the penalties and mm -hmm. for sure had not created the incentives. So right. out out of that program in 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 uh, in two thousand. And nine a little bit 2010 uh, for sure is it created the mandate for what is sort of the modern EHR and by the way we could talk forever about the problems with EHRs in this country yeah. uh, and the what I consider the the, the the fundamental problem between a vendor and a vendee okay <laughs> and, 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 and well, it's, it's it's who receives the, the vendor right yeah uh, it's a relationship between what 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 technology companies create and what physicians need. And then you throw in the government creating an extensive amount of regulations um, that were called meaningful use one, meaningful use two, effectively meaningful use three, which is really what they call you know 2015, mm -hmm. uh, and even more important, sort of interoperability, which is a big deal, and that that's effective this year. In the, I think it's summer this year. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's a big, big opportunity and a big, big challenge. So one of the things that, that the uh, the Biden administration has inherited, literally going back to the Bush administration, is is EHR, the interoperability, that tr the the the, the, uh, the tr uh, portability, 
um, and the ability for, as designed, planned, let's put it that way, is using certain protocols for EHR information to move across EHRs, to move across the system. And more importantly, is to it, by law, uh, everyone that uh, works with Medicare um, has to provide a portal for the consumer. So you're seeing a lot of companies emerge that are trying to create aggregate portals. By the way, we could, again, we could talk about that subject along for a couple of hours. Right. Um, but what you're now seeing is a crossroads in healthcare. Why I'm so excited about healthcare for the next decade is because the baby boomers are going to have a material impact in healthcare. The baby boomers are have been a very technology savvy company. As a matter of fact, as we've talked about also, most of the technology we use today Real technology was invented by baby boomers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, we, go, yes, we did. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, going back to <laughs> literally uh, the Bill Gates of the world and, and the Steve Jobs of the world and going forward. That so that, that generation is very comfortable because they were in business. They had to learn how to do business. Um, they they were the first ones to use email uh, and things like that. We invented email. Come on. Well, we can, invented the internet. You can take the credit. We invented the uh, we invented the computer. Please. Well, that, the computer, the personal computer, for sure. I don't know about the other ones, uh, because we're only thirty miles from where the personal computer was sort of uh, invented. The way, if you consider the yeah. the IBM personal computer, the invention of the personal computer, and I, I would I would argue maybe you could talk to Radio Shack or. So all of what happened is the technology drive is that being pushed to the baby boomers, the requirements of the baby boomers to get more more value, um, and and these price transparency that are by, by the way, the opportunities because of technology. If you had to go to each hospital and look at their charge master, it wouldn't be of any value but the fact of technology. No, that's right. Um, and and you, and you've got this huge consumerization. Uh, of healthcare that is emerging, and we're—I think—we're at the beginning stages. I don't know if it's chapter one or chapter two, or the you know still in minimal chapter one. But I'm convinced that if we see how consumerization has affected other industries, we're sort of at, at the beginning of this curve. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I think with that, um, we can uh, thank everyone for uh, listening to this, uh, putting up with this discussion. I would agree. Discussion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly our first one in 2021, and we hope to continue to making it more normal. But we remain incredibly excited. We're back to the, normal. We're, I'm not sure I would say that. But we're incredibly <laughs> excited by the opportunities ahead. Um, and in the next podcast, next podcast, we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, Biden administration and also uh, what we are doing uh, in our uh, what we call three pillars approach of, yes. of, of healthcare delivery, <laughs> of physical location and space, and technology stack, and yeah. why that's probably one of the key components in helping transform healthcare uh, for the next decade. Well, those are those hit on the three key areas that need to be addressed to make sure that healthcare recovers fully from what's happened in the COVID pandemic, as well as move forward and address, as we've talked to changing demographics we have in the nation and, and the changing picture of healthcare and physician numbers and all of that. That's a, we've got a lot of, a lot of variables, a lot of balls in the air that need to be addressed. And uh, there's just, an, and we've talked about this, Healthcare can only be addressed a little fraction at a time. There's just not one. There's not one size fits all change that is going to bring healthcare forward into 2030. 
that's a really hard thing for people to understand. There's no magic. There no, really is no magic. No magic bullet. So no, with that, bullet. we will thank everyone and hope you join us in the next podcast. Yes. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.